Let's pray. God, it's been an amazing day here at your church to witness new life, to see what you're doing in the hearts and minds of our children, our teenagers, our fellow adults. Just thank you for what you're doing. And God, as Troy helped us turn the corner there with that song, we want to wrap up a look we've been doing all year, God, at Grace, and doing it with something we know is so near and dear to your heart, this idea of those in physical and material need. Lord, in one sense, we're so blessed as a city, Scottsdale, with so many resources. But Lord, there's a lot of barriers to us unleashing resources to those around us, not the least of which are things that go on in our hearts and our minds. So as we do that work now, with the words and teachings of Jesus, God, would you break down the barriers that exist between us and the life that you want us to live in ministering to the least of these. So God, speak to our hearts and our minds, we pray now. Make this a very worthwhile time in your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as you've picked up on, we've been spending all year here at Scottsdale Bible Church pretty much talking about grace. We looked at grace in God, and then grace in the family, and then grace in church, and for the last couple months, this whole idea of grace and your neighbor. Simply put, how does grace not just affect us in here, but out there, Monday through Saturday, in our daily lives? And we've really saved the best for last, something that the Bible talks about over and over and over again, kind of like a scratch CD singing the same notes, this idea of grace and the poor or those with physical and material needs. There's over 2,000 passages in all of the Bible that talk about the fact that you and I as followers of God and then in the New Testament as followers of Christ need to be prioritizing those that are around us that are less fortunate than us. Everybody knows that. And yet the reality is, as we're going to see as we go on today, there are still great needs out there. And a church that has been blessed like Scottsdale Bible Church has a high expectation put on us, I believe, by Almighty God to not just do our part, but to do even more. And so what a great capstone to this series on grace as we learn to hand off grace to talk about the poor. Now, I racked my brains over the last couple of months on exactly how we could do this. Again, 2,000 passages in the Bible. We hardly have time to do that. And then it hit me. I thought, let's just look at what Jesus said. I mean, let's get a little bit myopic, a little bit laser beam in our focus and not try to cover everything the Bible says today, but let's talk about what Jesus has told us about the poor. And as I thought more about that, I thought this is going to be a blast because Jesus did two things to kind of shine the light on the poor when he was here 2,000 years ago. He lived a certain life among the poor. He demonstrated certain things to us, but then he also taught us a lot of things about the poor. So he both showed us as well as told us certain things that he wants our lives as his followers to be about. So, so in the time we have remaining here today, and we might go just a few minutes over. Did I prepare you well for that? Just a few minutes over. So any of you have your clocks set for like 12.15? Don't. If I hear them beep, I won't do anything. But don't have them beep. And uh, we're going to be just a few minutes because we have some things to cover. But I think you're going to find this very, very, very worthwhile. And, and you don't have an outline in front of you. The outline was due on Monday. This thing didn't come off the press till Friday night. So bummer for you, but I got a PowerPoint for those of you who like to take notes. And let's begin by looking at what Jesus shows us in his life and actions. And here is very clearly and simply what the historical records reveal. And that is that he prioritized those in need 
a lot. What does Jesus show us through his life? Well, that he chose to prioritize those who were less fortunate a lot. If you brought a Bible with you here today, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, my guess is there's one in the pew rack in front of you. I'm going to make it really easy on you. Page 816. Is that easy enough? Page 816 in your pew Bible. Uh, or you can look up here on the screen. Matthew chapter 11. Let's read the first five verses. And see if you can pick up on what Jesus shows us. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. So interesting passage. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one who was at his baptism, the one who told the people, here's the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, is now having second thoughts. He's in prison. He doesn't know what's going on. He hears that Jesus is hanging around all these undesirable people like tax collectors and sinners, that he's choosing lowly fishermen to be his followers. And he's kind of wondering, is this really the guy? So here in Matthew 11, he sends word to Jesus saying, are you really the one who was to come? And Jesus basically quotes Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, when he says to John, he says, send him and tell him, here's what's happening. That those who haven't seen before now see. Uh, those who hadn't heard before now hear. Those who are lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. And then I love the phrase. Give me another click here, guys, in verse 5 there. And the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus is basically saying to John, the scriptures foretold what the Messiah would do and what he would look like, and I'm him. Yes, what you're seeing in me, though there's also some confusing things for you, tells you that I'm the one to come. I'm the incarnate Son of God, as you said, John, come to take away the sins of the world. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says that much of his ministry, now dial into this for you and me today, is hanging around the poor, preaching the good news to them. Do you see that there at the end of verse 5? Hanging around the poor. Uh, scholars for years have tried to wiggle their way out of this one and said, well, maybe he meant like the poor in spirit, like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The only problem is, is, that this, is that this is the Greek word tokos, and this word literally means a beggar, a pauper, one who is in physical and material distress. It means a poor person. And so what Jesus is saying here, both to John and by extension to you and me, is that he spent a lot of time with those who are poor, giving them hope and giving them the good news. And what you and I need to realize for our purposes today, folks, is that this general witness that Jesus is giving John here was actually indicative of the precise lifestyle that Jesus lived consistently. In other words, he healed, he taught, he preached the good news, but mostly in the context of hanging around those in need, even the poor, those in physical need. I mean, the disciples he chose, they were not by and large rich men. They were lower on the economic scale. Jesus hung around poor women. He hung around people labeled sinners and tax collectors. 
Please see, Jesus lived a lifestyle of ministry to the poor. That's what he showed us. And this is not to say that he did not have any wealthy or powerful friends. Of course he did. But one thing you can't miss is that in the midst of all that Jesus said and he did, he carved out a huge chunk of his life to spend it with the poor. And once you and I latch on to this, once you and I see what Jesus actually did with his time and his resources and hanging so much around the poor, we got to ask the question, why? Right? I mean, is there something in that for you and for me today? In other words, why did Jesus spend so much of his ministry around the poor? What is it that would cause him to function this way? And the answer to this question is contained in the second thing that we need to look at today, and that is what Jesus teaches us. Because, folks, Jesus actually tells us in his teachings why he felt so compelled to hang around the poor and those in need. And those I hinted to earlier, you could classify uh, the various sayings of Jesus and the Bible when it comes to the poor in numerous ways, because there's so many things that both Jesus and the Bible say. For our sake today, I want you to notice three things, just three things in the few moments we have remaining that Jesus tells us about his poor friends. Three things that I believe if you and I will latch on to might alter our paradigm toward our city and those around us. And here's the first thing, and that is that he tells us the poor you always have with you, so keep them in your sights. The poor you're always going to have with you, so keep them in your sights. Now, we need to unpack this a little bit because there's been some key misunderstandings, I think, by the Christian church when it comes to this idea of the poor you always have with you. So let's look at the passage where Jesus tells us about this. And if you're still in Matthew, I want you to turn over now to chapter 26, beginning at verse 6. Matthew chapter 26. This is an account that happened to Jesus right before his arrest, right before his trial, right before his crucifixion and resurrection. And he's now in Bethany, just south of Jerusalem. And he's at the home of a leper, a poor person. And Mary is there. John tells us it's Mary in his retelling of this story. One of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And she takes a jar of expensive perfume, try to picture this, and she pours it on Jesus' head. Pours a jar of perfume on his head. And some of you are saying, well, that's gross. Actually not. In that culture back then, pouring a jar of perfume on a man's head, and then John tells us also on his feet, was actually a sign of endearment, of love. They didn't have the cleanliness stuff that we have today with multiple showers and baths and all of that, so they used perfume as a way to cover up the smells that the body would usually have. And so Mary is showing love to Jesus in this act here, but you'll notice that the disciples got ticked. They were kind of mad at Mary for doing this. And it says they were mad because they felt that this expensive perfume could have used, been used for money for the poor. Again, Jesus had told them on no less than five occasions before this to prioritize the poor. And they said, what a waste of resources. And Jesus' response to this is very revealing, if not profound. Look at verses 10 to 11 of Matthew chapter 26. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, I want you to focus on that phrase. I highlighted it there for you on the screen. You will always have the poor with you. 
Jesus is echoing Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, in which God tells Israel the exact same thing when he says, and I quote, the poor will always be in your land. And so Jesus is simply giving us a needed bit of understanding here so that we can have a right, right worldview of the poor and those in need around us. And though it's kind of a hard pill to swallow, what Jesus is saying here is that in a fallen world that is also very sinful, in which people can't seem to get things right because it's not heaven yet, poverty will always be around you. The poor you will always have with you. He's saying that our world is so sinful and fallen that though we can and should, as we're going to see here in a minute, give people a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and feed them and help them and do our best to alleviate poverty, he's saying get your reality check right. You're always going to be dealing with it in a sinful and a fallen world. And isn't it interesting, folks, that when you look at the economic and social political history of the last 150 years in the western part of the developed world, America and Europe, you will notice some significant and grand experiments designed to eliminate and erase poverty from some of the most powerful empires to ever exist in the history of the world, and they all have one thing in common, they haven't been able to do it. Isn't that interesting? So you got socialism in Denmark and Sweden. As of 20 years ago, you got communism in Russia and China. And you even have a democratic republic complete with a welfare state here in America, the United States. And the reality is, is that none of these systems have been able to effectively eliminate or erase poverty. In fact, not even close. And though I'm going to vie here in just a second for the U.S. system, because I think arguably we got a better system than communism. The reality is, is that even with our New Deal after the Great Depression, even with our wonderful welfare state, we still have poverty in our urban settings. We still have poverty in our rural settings. We even have poverty now in our suburban settings. We have not been able to erase it, even with all the resources we've thrown at poverty in our wonderful country. This week I went to a website, you can go to it too, that is run by the Cato Institute that does a lot of research with how government dollars have been used when it comes to poverty and our welfare state. And in 2004, the Cato Institute did a, a wonderful groundbreaking study in which this still blows me away. They revealed that the 40 years previous to 2004, the 40 years before that, our government, America, threw $9 trillion at poverty. Let that sink in a minute for those who understand money. $9 trillion in 40 years thrown at poverty. And specifically, it included Medicaid food stamps, student lunch programs, scholarship aid to college students, Medicaid spending for the elderly, Medicaid coverage for the disabled. In fact, it was so much money that I thought it was kind of humorous. The Cato Institute said that, that in today's world, in 2004, it would have been $225,000 per person currently then living in poverty. So in a sense, you could have just given $225,000 to every person on poverty in the year 2004 and said, I hope this helps for the next 40 years. That's how much in the previous 40 years we have spent to deal with poverty in our nation. And the reality is, is that Jesus wasn't kidding then when he says the poor you will always have with you. Because you and I all know that even after $9 trillion, we still in our country, which is arguably the greatest country in the world, still have a problem with poverty. 
And though some systems are obviously better than others, I mean, I would argue that a free society that compassionately tries to care for the poor is better than a communist society that forces so-called equity on everyone. I'd argue that as the day is long. The fact is, is that still in our compassionate free society, $9 trillion later, we still have needs all around us. We still have the poor. And please realize, folks, my point in mentioning all this is not to suggest that we shouldn't try to continue to alleviate poverty and help the poor. I think Jesus' words are the exact opposite here. I believe that Jesus tells us this so that we will keep the poor in our sights and consistently try to help them no matter what. The poor you will always have with you, so keep them on your radar. I think that's what Jesus is connoting here. I mentioned earlier that some people have actually messed up this verse, and and I've heard it subtly over the years. I've heard well-meaning Christians say, well, you know, the poor you're always going to have with you. That's what Jesus said. As if to suggest that because the poor you always have with you, just don't worry about it. Water off a duck's back, not a big deal. And I said, I don't think you quite understood the intent of Jesus' words here. I mean, the setting here is in a poor person's home. He's surrounded by poor friends. And so I doubt he's dissing poverty in this setting here. No, he's simply saying that in the midst of the poverty that you're always going to have with you, and it's good, follow my lifestyle, keep it in your sights, this loving woman has used what resource she has to show love to the incarnate Son of God. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that she would show to do that. But he's not somehow saying that we shouldn't care for the poor. He's saying the exact opposite. He's teaching something to us about them, namely that you're never going to eradicate poverty. And because of that, it's always going to be with you. So do your part. Do what you can to bring a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, to bring relief and a witness to the gospel to those around you. Now, with that under our belt, notice a second thing that Jesus then teaches us about the poor. And this is arguably the most powerful thing you're going to hear today. And that is that he teaches us that the poor are blessed and that they can teach us many things about God and this life. Very interesting. I'm not making this up. Jesus teaches us that the poor are blessed and can teach us many things about God and this life. So, So what's that about? I know we've jumped to two passages already, but let's jump to a third because we're trying to get an overview of what Jesus teaches us about the poor. Turn to Luke chapter 6, if you will. And as you're turning there, Jesus is at just the beginning of his ministry here. So we've gone back to the beginning. He's just chosen his 12 disciples. He's starting his preaching, teaching, healing ministry. And he's now going to do a teaching with them and those that were there listening uh, about the kingdom of God and some basic foundational things they should know about the kingdom. And so listen to how he begins. Look at verse 20 of Luke chapter 6. Look up here on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. It says, And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And now again, theologians and Bible commentators for years have tried to pull a fast one, some of them, on this passage. And they've said, you know, it sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, where Jesus says something similar. Do you guys remember it? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those theirs are the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit. And so what some try to do with this passage is say, well, he doesn't really mean the poor. He just means those who are poor in heart. 
you know, poor in their lives, made, up a, made, a, made a mess of things morally. Blessed are those people for hopefully they can find God, and that's how they interpret this passage. The only problem is, is that when you look closely at this passage here, it's a very different context than Matthew 5, verse 3. In other words, Jesus gave that sermon on a mountain. That's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Here he's giving it in the valley. That's why they call this the Sermon on the Plain. As well, there's differences in content. Matthew lists eight Beatitudes. Luke only lists four here. Luke's are in the second person. Matthew's are in the third person. Luke's have a more material and physical emphasis, while Matthew has a spiritual emphasis. And so I think it's pretty clear here, this is a different sermon that Jesus has given. And the reason that that's so important, folks, now don't miss this, is that I think Jesus is being literal here. I don't think you can read this in light of Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. I think he's saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And you and I got to ask, what in the world is he trying to get at with that one? I can imagine going down to the welfare office tomorrow with the Salvation Army and saying, I just got to tell you guys something. You are so blessed. All of you who are waiting here for a line and a check, I just got to tell you, I envy your life. You're just so blessed. And then get in your Corvette and go back to North Scottsdale. Can you imagine doing something like that? I mean, that would almost be a heartless, cruel thing to do. You'd never hear words like this out of somebody today. So what does Jesus mean by blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, I don't think he's necessarily blessing poverty itself here. What do you think of that? And I don't think that he's particularly blessing an entire social class. No, what I believe Jesus is getting at here, folks, and don't miss this, is that there's something about one's life when they go through a season of lacking material goods, of being in a state of not having all their material ducks in a row that makes you realize your need for God and your dependence upon Him and His provision. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think He's endorsing poverty as a lifestyle, though some have interpreted it that way, but I don't think so. What I think Jesus is saying is that if your circumstances are such that right now you are having to go without, consider yourself in some ways, in some great ways, blessed because you're not going to be tempted to rely on all those physical, material things around you. Your eyes are going to see more clearly into the provision that God has for your life if you will but trust him. I like how one Bible expert says it, commenting right here on Luke 6. He says, they are poor, and they know they are without resource. They rely on God, and they must rely on Him, for they have nothing of their own on which to rely. And what you need to know is that this teaching is all, all through the Bible. In fact, the Old Testament consistently ties poverty to piety. The psalmist says, yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. And further, folks, when you think about it, now tell me if this doesn't hit you. When you think about it, many of us in our lives, whether it's now or in the early days, have been in places where, where we've not had the material things we have today. And don't some of us look back on those days and say, wow, was God good. You learn something about faith and trust in Him when you had to do without. You've experienced that blessing that the Bible talks about. Uh, Kim and I got married when we were relatively young. I was 24, she was 22. I was just finishing grad school in Chicago. 
And my dad, I've told you guys about him, has always been a tough nut. I love him to death, but he grew up there in the Depression era. His dad died when he was seven. He had to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, so he was never very easy upon his sons. And though that was hard for me initially, I've grown over the years to love and respect him for it. But this is a true story. When I was 24 years old and just finishing grad school, I, I called home one day, and Kim and I were just in the process of getting married. I, and I said, you know, Dad, I was thinking of coming home for a few weeks and, uh, and you know, just to, before I get married to, 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 to spend some time with you and Mom. And he said, well, that's fine. He said, but i got to correct you right now. This is no longer your home. And I could hear my mom in the background going, oh, Frank, don't say that. And he said, stop, Carolyn, I'm not kidding. He said, this is not your home. He said, your home right now is with that woman you're marrying, and I don't have any idea where that's going to be, but that's your home. And then he said, I kid you not, he said, and by the way, for future reference, you will come when you're invited or when you ask to be invited, and that's it. And I said, well, I'm not coming home to this guy, you know. And, but I did. Like all kids, you still come home. And though my mom was upset with my dad for saying that, he was very tough on me and my brother that way. Much softer than my sister, mind you. That's a different story. But he was very tough on my brother and I. And he tried to drill home to us that you're on your own now. He paid for our education, but you're on your own. So the next year, Kim and I found ourselves living above a four-car garage in South Barrington, Illinois. We had our first little baby, Hannah, about a year or two into our marriage. And we remember the day we were sitting above this in our little apartment, and we were watching the news over dinner. Remember those metal TV trays? I can still remember. We're in front of a metal TV tray, and we're watching the news. And all of a sudden, they delivered on the news that night what the poverty level was. I don't know why, but I think the poverty level that year was like $13,000, $14,000. And Kim and I both stopped chewing at the same time, and we looked up, and we added our salaries together, and we realized we were below poverty level. <laughs> and we looked at each other, and we smiled. And we started to sing a song. I kid you not, that, that's going to date me somewhat, but we used to sing this all the time in the early parts of our marriage. It's that song that says, even though I ain't got money, I'm so in love with you, honey. <laughs> I know, I'm a romantic, aren't I? You guys didn't know that. There was a time when I was kind. There is. And we started singing that song. That became a song that we sang throughout our first two or three years of marriage. And, you know, Kim and I look back on those days, and we were so full of faith, we had not two nickels to rub together, but we knew that God would provide. And I could tell you story after story after story of how God provided for us during those days. And here's the point is that sometimes I look back on those days and I wonder where my faith has gone. Can you relate to that at all? I, I, I know you can. Some days I look back on those days and I go, I wonder if I trusted God more then than I do now. Because now I've arrived. I pastor a large church. I pastored a large church before I came here. I'm fairly well educated. I'm provided for by the church that I serve. And I sometimes wonder if in the midst of all of that, quote, success, if it hasn't chipped away at some of my faith. And it's a good question, I think, for all of us to ask. I think it's a good question for you and I to ask, have we bought into a Scottsdale mindset or where I came from, a Chagrin Falls mindset, in which we're told that now we're provided for, now we're okay. And you start to lean and rest back, and you're resting on your goods, not on your God. You see, I think that's exactly what Jesus is teaching you and I here. He's saying that there is a trap that comes with wealth. There is a trap that comes by having all of your needs provided, and that is that you're tempted not to rely on God anymore. 
Unless you wonder, this is exactly what James was saying. Look over on the screen in James chapter 2, verse 5. How do you make sense of this passage? He says, listen, my beloved, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You see, there's something about a lack of material things that causes us to rely upon God. And please don't hear me wrong. I am not suggesting that poverty is something we should all shoot for or that success is something that we shouldn't shoot for. I'm simply noting that God has said that there is something blessed about not having to be trapped by materialism in your life and that when we look at those who are in need, we can learn from them and even grow in our own faith. I'll show you how in just a second here as we learn to trust God deeper once again. You know, one of the things I said all the time, beginning about three years ago when the recession hit, it was the first time I ever had Scottsdale people came to me and say, you know, pray for my house, pray for my job, pray for my, my, my livelihood. As I would look people in the eye and, I, eye and I'd remind them all the time, don't ever forget that God is a God of provision. Don't ever forget that God loves you. He cares for you. Not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will. Every hair on your head is numbered. And that though you've not had to trust him very much in the last couple of decades because you've been flying high on the Dow, the reality is, is that now you have the wonderful opportunity to trust him as he will provide for you, even in difficult times. You see, there's a blessing that actually comes from poverty. I actually read an article by a fellow pastor, you'll kill me for even reading this article, that said praying, for, that was entitled Praying for a Recession. Isn't that a great article? Praying for a recession. And his point was, I'm not sure I agree with him completely, but his point was, is that it's only in times of recession that we see people starting to run to God. And I think there's something to that, folks. Scottsdale's been shown about 13% of Scottsdale goes to church on a regular basis. Here's what you guys need to know. That's well below the national average. The national average hovers somewhere around 40 to 45%. We're still a relatively church nation. Scottsdale goes way below that. Why? Could it be that many of us feel like our needs are cared for? We don't need God. But Jesus says, set your sights on the poor. Set your sights on those in need. And they will teach you how to thirst after God once again. So why did Jesus hang out with those in need? To help them and minister to them. They're always going to be with us. But also, secondly, to learn from them. They can teach us many things about God and his economy. And lastly, and with this we're done, and you don't want to miss this, Jesus taught us that we receive a great reward by ministering to and with the poor. We receive a great reward. Proverbs 19, 17 couldn't be more clear. It says, he who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his good deed. Jesus said it this way, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, the poor, the sick, those in prison, you did it to me. Over and over again, the Bible says that it is our obligation to minister to the poor, but it's not just a dutiful obligation. It's an opportunity, a privilege that you and I have to invest in those in need. Because when we do, God says, you're going to find more purpose, more peace, more joy, and even a reward, I'm sure, eternally for not just hoarding what you've been blessed with, but liberally sharing it with those around you. One last thought. 
As I was preparing our time here today, I thought long and hard, how do you talk to Scottsdale people about ministering to the poor without making them feel unduly guilty? Because I've heard so many messages by well-meaning missionaries and well-meaning inner city people when they come to visit us here in the suburbs, and like many of you, you walk away going, well, that was a good message, but don't I ever feel guilty? And I thought, you know what, I don't think that kind of guilt is necessarily healthy because what the guilt causes many of us to do is just retreat more into our escapist mentalities. So I thought, how do we do this in such a way that we all don't feel guilty, but we feel motivated to help those in need? And I think one of the ways we can do this to end our service today is just to remind you that you are now in a church, Scottsdale Bible Church, we're celebrating 50 years next year, that for 50 years has definitely poured into the poor and those around us. We're one of the wealthiest churches in all of Phoenix per capita. And yet I got to tell you, one of the reasons I felt called to come pastor you guys four years ago is because this church, and I'm not bragging, it's just a fact, has a rich history of hearing Jesus' words here. I sat in my office last night, just last night, and left some blank on my paper here. You can see where I've written it. I just left some blank here. And I just, no, you can't see that at all. But anyways, I sat there, and, <laughs> and trust me, it was blank. And I, and I just started to write down what ways... Has Scottsdale Bible Church poured into this community over the years? We've been involved with neighborhood ministries, Burma refugees, prison ministry, Phoenix Rescue Mission, Matthew 25, St. Mary's Food Bank. We've dug two wells in Tanzania, adopted two villages. We support over 500 children on a regular basis. We give away over $25,000, $30,000 a month through our elder fund. We give away shoes, winter coats, water in the summer. We gave $140,000 to Haiti with just four days' notice and one offering in addition to our regular offering, and so much more. I mean, this church, I, I love when the young pastors tell me, you know, that the reason they hate older churches is because they're attractional, not missional. It, like they invented what it means to minister to the poor. And I sit there and go, you know what, you guys haven't visited my church I'm telling you, before missional became popular, this church was out there serving this city and this world. And the reason that I tell you that, folks, now here's our last thought, I promise. The reason I tell you that is because if you're looking for a church where you can have no excuse to find a ministry that you can get involved in to minister to the poor, you got it right here. I mean, just look at your bulletin today. I was circling this right before our service. Just in the bulletin today, we only have about eight or nine announcements every week in the bulletin. We try to keep it real simple. You got Christmas in the barrio next week where we go down and throw a Christmas party in the barrio for hundreds and hundreds of people. And hundreds of us will do that together. We have housing and vehicle needs for missionaries. Talk about poor when they come off the field and need to try to exist in this culture for a few months as they raise more money. And then we next week also have a, a documentary screening for Sex and Money, a national search for human worth. The whole idea of child sex trafficking has actually hit the United States here. And we're hosting a, a conference here next week, next Sunday. You can read about that here and, and come to that. There's so many opportunities for you to get involved in a church like this. And again, I don't say it's to make you guilty. It's just that there are no excuses for any of us. And so there's two things I hope that you do as a result today. I hope you're drawn more to the poor. And then secondly, I hope you get in touch in the process with your own poverty. You know, God really is funny in the way he speaks to us. He, he never pulls any punches. But look at what Revelation 3, verse 17 says. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what God says to you and me. 
He says, don't read your own press releases. You might drive a nice car. You might live in a nice house. You might look so good on Sunday, but I know better. I know what's in your heart. I know what's going on in your life. And I still show you grace. And I love you. And I care for you. And I came for you in Jesus Christ. And now pass that grace on to those around you. So many ways to do that. Not the least of which is to roll up our sleeves and get involved. Bringing a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word comes along. And as we've seen there in our closing verse, Revelation 3, you pull no punches with us. You tell us who we are, what our lives are really like, but then you always, always, God, give us great hope as we give hope to the world by telling us that our lives can become what you want them to be as we follow you in your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray today as hopefully all of us are giving a little bit more concerted thought to how we are going to be involved in bringing a cup of cold water in Christ's name to our community, that, God, you would help each of us know what our role is to be. Lord, so many ways to do this, but all having the same theme of ministering to the least of these, showing the love of Jesus to those around us. God, I believe one of the reasons that you have blessed Scottsdale Bible Church over the years, and our previous pastors confirmed this, is because we've been true to your word, true to not just teaching it, but then living it out and becoming the kind of church you want us to be. Continue to do that in and through us, I pray, as we move into 50 years next year. God, thank you for each person here. Thank you that there's not one person here that's beyond the scope of your grace and beyond the great hope that you give us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.